Chapter Four of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel, translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter Four: Our Embryonic Development the older embryology the theory of preformation the theory of scatulation holler and leibniz the theory of epigenesis c f wolf the theory of germinal layers karl ernst baer discovery of the human ovum remak kerlicker the egg cell and the sperm cell the theory of the gastrea protozoa and metazoa the ova and the spermatozoa oscar hertwig conception embryonic development in man uniformity of the vertebrate embryo the germinal membranes in man the amnion the serolemma and the allantois the formation of the placenta and the afterbirth the decidua and the funiculus umbilicalis the discoid placenta of man and the ape comparative ontogeny or the science of the development of the individual animal is a child of the nineteenth century in even a truer sense than comparative anatomy and physiology how is the child formed in the mother's womb how do animals evolve from ova how does the plant come forth from the seed these pregnant questions have occupied the thoughtful mind for thousands of years yet it is only seventy years since the embryologist Baer pointed out the correct means and methods for penetrating into the mysteries of embryonic life. It is only forty years since Darwin, by his reform of the theory of descent, gave us the key which should open the long-closed door and lead to a knowledge of embryonic agencies as i have endeavoured to give a complete popular presentation of this very interesting but difficult study in the first section of my anthropogeny i will confine myself here to a brief survey and discussion of the most important phenomena let us first cast a historical glance at the older ontogeny and the theory of preformation which is connected with it the classical works of aristotle the many-sided father of science are the oldest known scientific sources of embryology as we found them to be for comparative anatomy not only in his great natural history but also in a special small work five books on the generation and development of animals the great philosopher gives us a host of interesting facts 
adding many observations on their significance it was not until our own days that many of them were fully appreciated and indeed we may say discovered afresh naturally many fables and errors are mixed up with them it was all that was known at that time of the hidden growth of the human germ yet during the long space of the next two thousand years the slumbering science made no further progress it was not until the commencement of the seventeenth century that there was a renewal of activity in sixteen hundred the italian anatomist fabricius ab aquapendente published at padua the first pictures and descriptions of the embryos of man and some of the higher animals in sixteen eighty seven the famous marcello malpighi of bologna a distinguished pioneer alike in zoology and botany published the first consistent exposition of the growth of the chick in the hatched egg all these older scientists were possessed with the idea that the complete body with all its parts was already contained in the ovum of animals only it was so minute and transparent that it could not be detected that therefore the whole development was nothing more than a growth or an unfolding of the parts that were already infolded involuti this erroneous notion almost universally accepted until the beginning of the present century is called the preformation theory sometimes it is called the evolution theory in the literal sense of unfolding but the latter title is accepted by modern scientists for the very different theory of transformation closely connected with the preformation theory and as a logical consequence of it there arose in the last century a further theory which keenly interested all thoughtful biologists the curious theory of scatulation as it was thought that the outline of the entire organism with all its parts was present in the egg the ovary of the embryo had to be supposed to contain the ova of the following generation these again the ova of the next and so on in infinitum on that basis the distinguished physiologist haller calculated that god had created together six thousand years ago on the sixth day of his creatorial labors the germs of two hundred billion men and ingeniously packed them all in the ovary of our venerable mother eve even the gifted philosopher leibniz fully accepted this conclusion and embodied it in his monadist theory and as on his theory soul and body are in eternal inseparable companionship the consequence had to be accepted for the soul the souls of men have existed in organized bodies 
in their ancestors from adam downward that is from the very beginning of things in the month of november seventeen fifty nine a young doctor of twenty-six years caspar friedrich wolf son of a berlin tailor published his dissertation for the degree at halle under the title theoria generationis supported by a series of most laborious and painstaking observations he proved the entire falsity of the dominant theories of preformation and scatulation in the hatched egg there is at first no trace of the coming chick and its organs instead of it we find on top of the yolk a small circular white disc this thin germinal disc becomes gradually round and then breaks up into four folds lying upon each other which are the rudiments of the four chief systems of organs the nervous system above the muscular system underneath the vascular system with the heart and finally the alimentary canal thus as wolf justly remarked the embryonic development does not consist in an unfolding of the preformed organs but in a series of new constructions it is a true epigenesis one part arises after another and all make their appearance in a simple form which is very different from the later structure this only appears after a series of most remarkable formations although this great discovery one of the most important of the eighteenth century could be directly proved by a verification of the facts wolf had observed and although the theory of generation which was founded on it was in reality not a theory at all but a simple fact it met with no sympathy whatever for half a century it was particularly retarded by the high authority of haller who fought it strenuously with the dogmatic assertion that there is no such thing as development no part of the animal body is formed before another all were created together wolf who had to go to st petersburg was long in his grave before the forgotten facts he had observed were discovered afresh by oaken at jena in eighteen o six after wolf's epigenesis theory had been established by oaken and neckel whose important work on the development of the alimentary canal was translated from latin into german a number of young german scientists devoted themselves eagerly to more accurate embryological research the most important and successful of these was karl ernst baer his principal work appeared in eighteen twenty eight with the title history of the development of animals observations and reflections not only the phenomena of the formation of the germ are clearly illustrated and fully described in it but it adds a number of very pregnant speculations 
in particular the form of the embryo of man and the mammals is correctly presented and the vastly different development of the lower invertebrate animals is also considered the two leaf-like layers which appear in the round germ disc of the higher vertebrates first divide according to bayer into two further layers and these four germinal layers are transformed into four tubes which represent the fundamental organs the skin layer the muscular layer the vascular layer and the mucus layer then by very complicated evolutionary processes the later organs arise in substantially the same manner in man and all the other vertebrates the three chief groups of invertebrates which in their turn differ widely from each other have a very different development one of the most important of bear's many discoveries was the finding of the human ovum up to that time the little vesicles which are found in great numbers in the human ovary and in that of all other mammals had been taken for the ova bear was the first to prove in eighteen twenty seven that the real ova are enclosed in these vesicles the graphian follicles and much smaller being tiny spheres one one hundred twentieth inch in diameter visible to the naked eye as minute specks under favorable conditions he discovered likewise that from this tiny ovum of the mammal there develops first a characteristic germ globule a hollow sphere with liquid contents the wall of which forms the slender germinal membrane or blastoderm ten years after bear had given a firm foundation to embryological science by his theory of germ layers a new task confronted it on the establishment of the cellular theory in eighteen thirty eight what is the relation of the ovum and the layers which arise from it to the tissues and cells which compose the fully developed organism the correct answer to this difficult question was given about the middle of this century by two distinguished pupils of johannes muller robert remack of berlin and albert kerlicker of Würzburg they showed that the ovum is at first one simple cell and that the many germinal globules or granules which arise from it by repeated segmentation are also simple cells from this mulberry-like group of cells are constructed first the germinal layers and subsequently by differentiation or division of labor all the different organs kerlicker has the further merit of showing that the seminal fluid of male animals is also a mass of microscopic cells the active pin-shaped seed animalcules or spermatozoa in it are merely ciliated cells as i first proved in the case of the seed filaments of the sponge in eighteen sixty six 
thus it was proved that both the materials of generation the male sperm and the female ova fell in with the cellular theory that was a discovery of which the great philosophic significance was not appreciated until a much later date on a close study of the phenomena of conception in eighteen seventy five all the older studies in embryonic development concern man and the higher vertebrates especially the embryonic bird since hen's eggs are the largest and most convenient objects for investigation and are plentiful enough to facilitate experiment we can hatch them in the incubator as well as by the natural function of the hen and so observe from hour to hour during the space of three weeks the whole series of formations from the simple germ cell to the complete organism even bear had only been able to gather from such observations the fact that the different classes of vertebrates agreed in the characteristic form of the germ layers and the growth of particular organs in the innumerable classes of invertebrates on the other hand that is in the great majority of animals the embryonic development seemed to run quite a different course and most of them seemed to be altogether without true germinal layers it was not until about the middle of the century that such layers were found in some of the invertebrates huxley for instance found them in the medusae in eighteen forty nine and curlicker in the cephalopods in eighteen forty four particularly important was the discovery of kovalevsky eighteen eighty six that the lowest vertebrate the lancelot or amphioxus is developed in just the same manner and a very original fashion it is as an invertebrate apparently quite remote tunicate the sea squirt or ascidian even in some of the worms the radiata and the articulata a similar formation of the germinal layers was pointed out by the same observer i myself was then since eighteen eighty six occupied with the embryology of the sponges corals medusae and siphonophori and as i found the same formation of two primary germ layers everywhere in these lowest classes of multicellular animals i came to the conclusion that this important embryonic feature is common to the entire animal world the circumstance that in the sponges and the nidaria polyps medusae etc the body consists for a long time sometimes throughout life merely of two simple layers of cells seemed to me especially significant huxley had already eighteen forty nine compared these in the case of the medusae with the two primary germinal layers of the vertebrates on the ground of these observations and comparisons i then in eighteen seventy two in my philosophy of the calcispongiae 
published the theory of the gastrea of which the following are the essential points one the whole animal world falls into two essentially different groups the unicellular primitive animals protozoa and the multicellular animals with complex tissues metazoa the entire organism of the protozoan the rhizopods of the infusoria remains throughout life a single simple cell or occasionally a loose colony of cells without the formation of tissue a synobium the organism of the metazoan on the contrary is only unicellular at the commencement and is subsequently built up of a number of cells which form tissues two hence the method of reproduction and development is very different in each of these great categories of animals the protozoa usually multiply by non-sexual means by fission gemmation or spores they have no real ova and no sperm the metazoa on the contrary are divided into male and female sexes and generally propagate sexually by means of true ova which are fertilized by the male sperm three hence further true germinal layers and the tissues which are formed from them are found only in the metazoa they are entirely wanting in the protozoa four in all the metazoa only two primary layers appear at first and these have always the same essential significance from the outer layer the external skin and the nervous system are developed from the inner layer are formed the alimentary canal and all the other organs five i called the germ which always arises first from the impregnated ovum and which consists of these two primary layers the gut larva or the gastrula its cup-shaped body with the two layers encloses originally a simple digestive cavity the primitive gut the progaster or archenteron and its simple opening is the primitive mouth the prostoma or blastoporus these are the earliest organs of the multicellular body and the two cell layers of its enclosing wall simple epithelia are its earliest tissues all the other organs and tissues are a later and secondary growth from these six from this similarity or homology of the gastrula in all classes of compound animals i drew the conclusion in virtue of the biogenetic law page eighty one that all the metazoa come originally from one simple ancestral form the gastrea and that this ancient laurentian long extinct form had the structure and composition of the actual gastrula in which it is preserved by heredity seven this phylogenetic conclusion 
based on the comparison of ontogenetic facts is confirmed by the circumstance that there are several of these gastraeides still in existence gastremaria siamaria physimaria etc and also some ancient forms of other animal groups whose organization is very little higher the olynthus of the sponges the hydra or common freshwater polyp of the nidaria the convoluta and other cryptocala or worms of the simplest type of the platodes eight in the further development of the various tissue-forming animals from the gastrula we have to distinguish two principal groups the earlier and lower types the celentaria or acelomia have no body cavity no vent and no blood such is the case with the gastraeides sponges nidaria and platodes the later and higher types the coelomaria or bilateria on the other hand have a true body cavity and generally blood and a vent to these we must refer the worms and the higher types of animals which were evolved from these later on the echinodermata mollusca articulata tunicata and vertebrata those are the main points of my gastrea theory i have since enlarged the first sketch of it given in eighteen seventy two and have endeavoured to substantiate it in a series of studies on the gastrea theory eighteen seventy three to eighty four although it was almost universally rejected at first and fiercely combated for ten years by many authorities it is now and has been for the last fifteen years accepted by nearly all my colleagues let us now see what far-reaching consequences follow from it and from the evolution of the germ especially with regard to our great question the place of man in nature the human ovum like that of all other animals is a single cell and this tiny globular egg cell about the one hundred twentieth of an inch in diameter has just the same characteristic appearance as that of all other viviparous organisms the little ball of protoplasm is surrounded by a thick transparent finely reticulated membrane called the zona pellucida even the little globular germinal vesicle the cell nucleus which is enclosed in the protoplasm the cell body is of the same size and the same qualities as in the rest of the mammals the same applies to the active spermatozoa of the male the minute thread-like ciliated cells of which millions are found in every drop of the seminal fluid on account of their life-like movements they were previously taken to be forms of life 
as the name indicates spermatozoa sperm animals moreover the origin of both these important sexual cells in their respective organs is the same in man as in the other mammals both the ova in the ovary of the female and the spermatozoa in the spermarium of the male arise in the same fashion they always come from cells which are originally derived from the calus epithelium the layer of cells which clothes the cavity of the body the most important moment in the life of every man as in that of all other complex animals is the moment in which he begins his individual existence it is the moment when the sexual cells of both parents meet and coalesce for the formation of a single simple cell this new cell the impregnated egg cell is the individual stem cell the cytula the continued segmentation of which produces the cells of the germinal layers and the gastrula with the formation of this cytula hence in the process of conception itself the existence of the personality the independent individual commences this ontogenic fact is supremely important for the most far-reaching conclusions may be drawn from it in the first place we have a clear perception that man like all the other complex animals inherits all his personal characteristics bodily and mental from his parents and further we come to the momentous conclusion that the new personality which arises thus can lay no claim to immortality hence the minute processes of conception and sexual generation are of the first importance we are however only familiar with their details since eighteen seventy five when oscar hertwig my pupil and fellow-traveller at that time began his researches into the impregnation of the egg of the sea urchin at ajaccio in corsica the beautiful capital of the island in which napoleon the great was born in seventeen sixty nine was also the spot in which the mysteries of animal conception were carefully studied for the first time in their most important aspects hertwig found that the one essential element in conception is the coalescence of the two sexual cells and their nuclei only one out of the millions of male ciliated cells which press round the ovum penetrates to its nucleus the nuclei of both cells of the spermatozoan and of the ovum drawn together by a mysterious force which we take to be a chemical sense activity related to smell approach each other and melt into one thus by the sensitive perception of the sexual nuclei 
following upon a kind of erotic chemicotropism a new cell is formed which unites in itself the inherited qualities of both parents the nucleus of the spermatozoan conveys the paternal features the nucleus of the ovum those of the mother to the stem cell from which the child is to be developed that applies both to the bodily and to the mental characteristics the formation of the germinal layers by the repeated division of the stem cell the growth of the gastrula and of the later germ structures which succeed it take place in man in just the same manner as in the other higher mammals under the peculiar conditions which differentiate this group from the lower vertebrates in the earlier stages of development these special characters of the placentalia are not to be detected the significant embryonic or larval form of the cordula which succeeds the gastrula has substantially the same structure in all vertebrates a simple straight rod the dorsal cord lies lengthwise along the main axis of the shield-shaped body the embryonic shield above the cord the spinal marrow develops out of the outer germinal layer while the gut makes its appearance underneath then on both sides to the right and left of the axial rod appear the segments of the provertebrae and the outlines of the muscular plates with which the formation of the members of the vertebrate body begins the gill clefts appear on either side of the foregut they are the openings of the gullet through which in our primitive fish ancestors the water which had entered at the mouth for breathing purposes made its exit at the sides of the head by a tenacious heredity these gill clefts which have no meaning except for our fish-like aquatic ancestors are still preserved in the embryo of man and all the other vertebrates they disappear after a time even after the five vesicles of the embryonic brain appear in the head and the rudiments of the eyes and ears at the sides and after the legs sprout out at the base of the fish-like embryo in the form of two roundish flat buds the fetus is still so like that of other vertebrates that it is indistinguishable from them the substantial similarity in outer form and inner structure which characterizes the embryo of man and other vertebrates in this early stage of development is an embryological fact of the first importance from it by the fundamental law of biogeny we may draw the most momentous conclusions there is but one explanation of it heredity from a common parent form when we see that at a certain stage the embryos of man and the ape the dog and the rabbit the pig and the sheep although recognizable as higher vertebrates 
cannot be distinguished from each other. The fact can only be elucidated by assuming a common parentage. And this explanation is strengthened when we follow the subsequent divergence of these embryonic forms. The nearer two animals are in their bodily structure, and therefore in the scheme of nature, so much the longer do we find their embryos to retain this resemblance, and so much the closer do they approach each other in the ancestral tree of their respective group, so much the closer is their genetic relationship. Hence it is that the embryos of man and the anthropoid ape retain the resemblance much later, at an advanced stage of development, when their distinction from the embryos of other mammals can be seen at a glance. I have illustrated this significant fact by a juxtaposition of corresponding stages in the development of a number of different vertebrates in my Natural History of Creation and in my Anthropogeny. The great phylogenetic significance of the resemblance we have described is seen not only in the comparison of the embryos of vertebrates, but also in the comparison of their protective membranes. All vertebrates of the three higher classes, reptiles, birds, and mammals, are distinguished from the lower classes by the possession of certain special fetal membranes, the amnion and the serolemma. The embryo is enclosed in these membranes, or bags, which are full of water, and is thus protected from pressure or shock. This provident arrangement probably arose during the Permian period, when the oldest reptiles, the pro-reptilia, the common ancestors of all the amniotes, animals with an amnion, completely adapted themselves to a life on land. Their direct ancestors, the amphibia, and the fishes are devoid of these fetal membranes. They would have been superfluous to these inhabitants of the water. With the inheritance of these protective coverings are closely connected two other changes in the amniotes. Firstly, the entire disappearance of the gills, while the gill arches and clefts continue to be inherited as rudimentary organs. Secondly, the construction of the alantois. This vesicular bag, filled with water, grows out of the hind gut in the embryo of all the amniotes, and is nothing else than an enlargement of the bladder of their amphibious ancestors. From its innermost and inferior section is formed subsequently the permanent bladder of the amniotes, while the larger outer part shrivels up. Usually this has an important part to play for a long time as the respiratory organ of the embryo, a number of large blood vessels spreading out over its inner surface. The formation of the membranes, the amnion and the serolemma, and of the alantois, is just the same, and is effected by the same complicated process of growth 
in man as in all the other amniotes. Man is a true amniote. The nourishment of the fetus in the maternal womb is effected, as is well known, by a peculiar organ, richly supplied with blood at its surface, called the placenta. This important nutritive organ is a spongy round disc from six to eight inches in diameter, about an inch thick, and one or two pounds in weight. It is separated after the birth of the child and issues as the afterbirth. The placenta consists of two very different parts, the fetal and the maternal part. The latter contains highly developed sinuses which retain the blood conveyed to them by the arteries of the mother. On the other hand, the fetal placenta is formed by innumerable branching tufts or villi which grow out of the outer surface of the allantois and derive their blood from the umbilical vessels. The hollow, blood-filled villi of the fetal placenta protrude into the sinuses of the maternal placenta and the slender membrane between the two is so attenuated that it offers no impediment to the direct interchange of material through the nutritive bloodstream by osmosis in the older and lower groups of the placentals the entire surface of the chorion is covered with a number of short villi these chorion villi take the form of pit-like depressions of the mucous membrane of the mother and are easily detached at birth that happens in most of the ungulata the sow camel mare etc the cetacea and the prosimii these malo placentalia with a diffuse placenta have been denominated the indeciduata the same formation is present in man and the other placentals in the beginning. It is soon modified, however, as the villi on one part of the chorion are withdrawn, while on the other part they grow proportionately stronger and unite intimately with the mucous membrane of the womb. It is in consequence of this intimate blending that a portion of the uterus is detached at birth and carried away with loss of blood. This detachable membrane, the decidua, is a characteristic of the higher placentalia, which have consequently been grouped under the title of deciduata. To that category belong the carnassia, rodentia, simii and man in the carnassia and some of the ungulata the elephant for instance the placenta takes the form of a girdle hence they are known as the zonoplacentalia in the rodentia the insectivora the mole and the hedgehog the apes and man it takes the form of a disc even ten years ago the majority of embryologists thought that man was distinguished by certain peculiarities in the form of the placenta 
namely by the possession of what is called the decidua reflexa and by a special formation of the umbilical cord which unites the decidua to the fetus it was supposed that the rest of the placentals including the apes were without these special embryonic structures the funiculus umbilicalis is a smooth cylindrical cord from sixteen to twenty-three inches long and as thick as the little finger it forms the connecting link between the fetus and the maternal placenta since it conducts the nutritive vessels from the body of the fetus to the placenta it comprises besides the pedicle of the allantois and the yelk sac the yelk sac in the human case forms the greater portion of the germinal vesicle during the third week of gestation but it shrivels up afterwards so that it was formerly entirely missed in the mature fetus yet it remains all the time in a rudimentary condition and may be detected even after birth as the little umbilical vesicle moreover even the vesicular structure of the allantois disappears at an early stage in the human case with a deflection of the amnion it gives rise to the pedicle we cannot enter here into a discussion of the complicated anatomical and embryological relations of these structures i have described and illustrated them in my anthropogeny twenty-third chapter the opponents of evolution still appealed to these special features of human embryology which were supposed to distinguish man from all the other mammals even so late as ten years ago but in eighteen ninety emil selenka proved that the same features are found in the anthropoid apes especially in the orang satyrus while the lower apes are without them thus huxley's pithecometra thesis was substantiated once more the differences between man and the great apes are not so great as are those between the man-like apes and the lower monkeys the supposed evidences against the near blood relationship of man and the apes proved on a closer examination of the real circumstances to be strong reasons in favor of it every scientist who penetrates with open eyes into this dark but profoundly interesting labyrinth of our embryonic development and who is competent to compare it critically with that of the rest of the mammals will find in it a most important aid towards the elucidation of the descent of our species for the various stages of our embryonic development in the character of palingenetic phenomena of heredity cast a brilliant light on the corresponding stages of our ancestral tree in accordance with the great law of biogeny but even the xenogenetic phenomena of adaptation the formation of the temporary fetal organs 
the characteristic fetal membranes, and especially the placenta, gives us sufficiently definite indications of our close genetic relationship with the primates. End of chapter 4